die of our children. The second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? The seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to, the age, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Therefore, they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, but they no longer dared to ask him any question. Oh Lord God, as we study this encounter in the temple, this attempt between Jesus' enemies and himself to trap Jesus as he masterfully commands your word, reveals his glory, silences his adversaries, we have a great and mighty Savior. May we behold his glory. May we model his confidence in your word. And may we have an equal confidence in the resurrection that awaits us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been following along with us for the past few weeks, or if you look at the top of the uh, sermon insert, you'll see this is part four in a six-part series of conflict in the temples. Jesus entered Jerusalem at the end of chapter 19, and he cleansed the temple. And from chapter 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, all the way to the end of chapter 21, Verse 37, every day he was teaching in the temple. That inclusio, that literary form, lets us know this is a unit. And in that unit, Luke reveals to us what takes place during the Passion Week. Some of the Gospels focus on what happened on this day, what happened on this day. Luke's emphasis is this. Jesus shows up into Jerusalem, enters his father's house, clears it out, sets up shop, and says in effect, this is my house. And every day he's teaching in it. From, from sunup to sundown, the people are coming and as he's teaching in the temple, there is conflict. Luke records six specific conflicts between Jesus and his enemies. And we've already looked at three of them. The first, initiated by his enemies in chapter 20, verse 1, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things. They challenge Jesus' authority. And Jesus responds to their question with a question. You tell me, John's baptism, from heaven or from man? And these cowards... These liars reason with themselves and both answers have problems, so they just say, we don't know. And Jesus defeats them. And he tells the parable of the vineyard owner and his son who is murdered. And look at verse 19 of chapter 20. Describes the chief priest softly hands on him and that very often he perceived that he had told this parable against them. So there's a second conflict. First one they initiate, second one Jesus tells that parable. Then they get a little craftier and they hire, send spies in. They think, okay, Jesus is pretty savvy and tough, 
But maybe if he doesn't see us coming, we catch him off guard, we can trip him up, get him to say something against Caesar, and then Caesar can, can do something. Look at verse 20, chapter 20. They've watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, then they catch him something that he said, so as he delivered him up to the authority of the jurisdiction of the governor. And they asked for paying taxes to Caesar. And again, he, he avoids the trap, and they neither find anything to charge him in front of the governor, but also in front of the people he's vindicated as well. Look at verse uh, 26. And they were not able to catch him in the presence of the people. So Jesus has deftly avoided their traps. He has shown his, his power. And the result of that last encounter, look at that in the end of verse 26, they became silent. All of Jesus' elite, I mean, all of Jesus, all of Israel's elite teachers, the rabbis, the scribes, the lawyers, are attacking Jesus and he silences them. And this morning he does it in a final sense. Look at the end of verse 40. They no longer dared to ask him anything. Now, Jesus isn't done. He's got two more salvos to go across. But this is the, the triumph of Jesus of the Messiah over his foes. Um, it's in this final encounter of the Sadducees that we see our Lord's authority, his command of scripture. So let's, let's follow us along in three points. The first, we're to see the Sadducees' absurd question. The Sadducees' absurd question. Now Luke doesn't assume that we're all Near Eastern scholars, and so he very helpfully supplies some necessary information. And this, this text wouldn't make sense unless we knew what Luke tells us about the Sadducees. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Luke's not sure that Theophilus knows this, so he very helpfully supplies information. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us and commands brother die, sending a wife and no children. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died and no children. The second and the third took them. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had his wife. Now, I've lived with some absurd question for two reasons, which I think you'll see. The question is bogus, it's fake. There is no woman, there are no seven brothers. They, they don't believe in the resurrection. And the question is meant to try to show, from their perspective, the absurdity of the doctrine of the resurrection. So let's look first at their beliefs. Luke tells us they deny. The resurrection. So as you're thinking through the groups in, in Israel, you have the Pharisees who are religious right. They're the ones who want to get prayer in the schools, the Ten Commandments, the courthouses. They're the ones who want the society structure to, to adhere to the law of Moses. They're the literalists. And they fall into the trap of legalism and self-righteousness. On the other side, you have the Sadducees. Um, they don't believe in the resurrection. And Luke it tells us in Acts a little more about them. Listen to Acts 5, 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. So they're very connected to the priesthood. From what we can tell, the Sadducees run the temple. And so as you try to reconstruct from the Bible what's going on, the Pharisees seem to have the jurisdiction of the local synagogues, town to town, Based on Acts 5.17, the party that's around the high priest are the Sadducees. And a little later in Acts 23.8, we learn one more tidbit about them. The Sadducees 
saying that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So these are materialists. They believe in a religion for this world and life only. There's no soul, there's no spirit, there's no angels, there's no afterlife, there's no heaven, there's no hell. And yet they run the religious system. They see a value of it for here and now. Um, maybe the contemporary model might be the sort of social gospel, um, the, the left side of the religious sphere. Those would be contemporary counterparts. And, and they deny belief in the resurrection. Part of that appears to be that they give priority to the books of Moses. And they argue that there's no clear teaching of the resurrection there. Jesus will correct them on this shortly. So that's their beliefs. They, they seem to be aristocratic, wealthy, powerful. They run the temple. And you can understand then why they would not be pleased with Jesus. They had quite a profitable system of selling and buying going on. Jesus has cleared it out, no buying and selling. This is the week of the feast. This is the week of the Passover. Think how much money they are losing. And the embarrassment of this, this upstart, carpenter's son, self-appointed rabbi, holding court in the temple every day from dawn till dusk. Oh, they want to get Jesus. And so the enemy is my enemy, is my friend. And so they become, they team up with the Pharisees, even though they're conflict with them religiously, theologically, because they all want to take out Jesus. And so the scribes have taken their shot. And now the, the religious left comes in and take their swipe at Jesus. And they ask him a question. And at the end of the question, the basic question is, is the resurrection whose wife will she be? What they're referring to is the practice of leveret marriage. Um, first seen with Tamar being given to Judah's sons as they die, but then um, given as law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, it says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that this man may not be blotted out of Israel. So there's the practice of leveret marriage. It's a way for the inheritance to go forward, for the, for the name of the tribe to go forward. It's part of the law of Moses. And what they're doing, and here's the rationale, they're using a form of argument called reductive insertia. Um, don't worry about the title. We do it all the time. Jesus does it. And what you do is, when you use reductive insertia, you assume your opponent's viewpoint that you don't agree with, and you demonstrate and prove that if what you're saying is true, then these crazy things must happen also. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection, then... The Christ is raised, you're dead, your sins, your faith is useless, and you're all going to most be pitied. Through Dr. Mitzurio. Jesus has done it. It's not in and of itself a corrupt, corrupt form of reasoning. Back in Luke chapter 11, Jesus assumed they've been charged with Jesus with casting out demons by the power of Satan. And in Luke 11 18, Jesus says, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? If what you're saying is true, then how can Satan's kingdom stand? You say that the cast down team is not available. The reason why this is a little bit corrupt is because they're sort of pretending this thing actually happened. I mean, a much simpler question would simply be, in the resurrection, whose wife would Tamar be? You can go back and read that story in Genesis, but Tamar is given to three of Judah's sons who all die. 
And so they could just ask that question. So there is no woman, there are no seven brothers. But the point is clear. They're, they're trying to demonstrate that it was a ridiculous scenario. It's kind of ironic. They probably wouldn't bat an eyelash at a man having seven wives. But the notion of a woman having seven husbands, that's just crazy. And so they are making some assumptions about the resurrection that Jesus will correct. But that's, that's what they're trying to do. Surely they're saying there cannot be a resurrection because if there were a resurrection Jesus, there'd be scenarios where a woman would have seven husbands. That's just crazy. So doesn't that prove the foolishness of this notion of resurrection? That's what they're attempting to do. That's their, their argument in their question. And Jesus will first answer their stated question, and then he will answer the assumed, undergirded question. Okay? So we turn from the Sadducees' absurd question. They're trying to show the absurdity of the resurrection, but it itself is foolish. The Jesus' authoritative answer. Jesus' authoritative answer. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels, sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage of the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of dead, of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So first, Jesus is going to deal with their presented question of this fictitious woman and her seven husbands. And then he's going to deal with the real question. Is there resurrection? So point A here, first we'll get truth about the resurrection. Truth about the resurrection. And the reason why I say this is authoritative is for this entire response, Jesus doesn't cite text. Jesus himself is the locus of authority. He's just going to tell them about the resurrection. He's just going to declare truth about the resurrection. See, their error in thinking lies and they assume continuity, sameness, between this age and the age to come. If you read the passage, you see the entire answer hinges upon the discontinuity, the distinctions, the differences between this age and the age to come. The sons of this age, Jesus says, Mary, are given in marriage. But those who are considered to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, either Mary or given in marriage. You see, there's a distinction. So I'm going to look at this in four truths that he applies on the resurrection to clarify the misunderstandings. First is the truth of matrimony, or marriage. And here's Jesus' point. Marriage is for this age only. Marriage is for this age only. There will not be marriage like we see it now in the age to come in the resurrection. So there's no real problem. Who's she married to? None of them. Now, I know that that discourages some of you. I've talked to people actually are, are discouraged and, and confused. Well, I love my wife so much, and she will mean, what do you mean she won't be my wife? Here's the wonderful reality. Um, as much as I love my wife, I remember when we got engaged and I told her this. I said, I will love you always and forever. I didn't say always and forever, sorry. That's that's important. I will love you always. <laughs> I always love you. And my wife, trying to be a clever Bible student, said, Aha, uh-huh, we're not going to marry in the resurrection. And I said, I will love you better in the resurrection as my sister in Christ, and more fully in the resurrection than I do now, Jesus. That's the reality. Matrimony is for this age only. Now, Luke 
doesn't give us this information. The Apostle Paul helps to explain part of this. In Ephesians 5, after giving instructions to husbands and wives, he writes this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, but she shall become flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You see, you learn that the reason why marriage is for this age and epoch only is because it pictures, it is a shadow of the reality of the bridegroom's union with his bride, the church, in the age to come. So when the reality comes, the shadow is done away with. All of redemptive history can be summed up in this way. A nobleman's son, the son of a king, redeems and gains to himself a bride. That's all of human history. The father glorifying his son through the marriage supper of the Lamb, of the Son of God to his bride who has been ransomed and redeemed and cleansed and glorified. And so there's a mystery there. But the make no mistake, it is only improvement. Things get better. And everything you love about marriage and everything you find wonderful about, about it's only to improve when we are married to the Lord. And the marriage stuff of the land occurs. Matrimony is for this age on. There, there's no problem. She's married to none of them. But Jesus goes on to say more. That could just end it right there. Guys, you don't get the distinction between this age and the age to come. You've assumed they're similar, you've assumed they're alike. But he goes on to give some truth about exclusivity. Notice that he says this, um, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. You see, another assumption the Sadducees had is if there is a resurrection, they're saying, well, then everyone makes it to the resurrection. They had to consider the possibility that maybe this woman didn't make it, or maybe five of the seven, or three of the seven brothers make it, or maybe none of them make it. They've assumed a commonality. Everyone, if there is an afterlife, goes to heaven. Right? And that's popular today. We're not sure if we believe in heaven or not, but if there is, everyone goes there, except maybe really, really bad people like Hitler. But everyone goes there. And Jesus said, no, no. There's exclusivity. Not all will attain to that age. Not all will attain to that age. In fact, listen to Daniel chapter 12, speaking clearly on this. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Not all will attain to that age. And I think what Jesus is doing is challenging the Sadducees. They're so busy trying to argue the theological point. Have they considered whether or not they will attain to that age? And Jesus doesn't here explicitly state how long you can attain to that age, but if you just turn back a little bit to Luke 18, um, his encounter with the rich ruler answers this question decisively. Luke 18, verse 18, the ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And how I know we're talking about the same thing is if you jump all the way to verse 30, Jesus says, well actually go to verse um, 29. Truly, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or life or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and to the age to come eternal life. So this eternal life that the rich young rulers asking us, the life of the age, literally that's the Greek, life of the age, the age to come, not the now life, but the then life, and that's the same distinction Jesus is making here, and Jesus answered the rich ruler is this, what you need if you want to attain to that life, 
to that age is you need to forsake whatever you're holding on to and turn to trust, follow, love Jesus. That's what the rich young ruler is lacking. He loves money. It's his treasure. He's holding it tight. Just let go of your treasure. Let it drop on the floor and follow me by faith. And so Jesus is challenging the Sadducees, saying, look guys, there is a resurrection. And not only there is a resurrection, not everybody's going to go there. Again, this is not popular in our day and age. Jesus teaches more about hell and judgment than anyone in the Bible. This isn't some mean, angry, Old Testament God doctrine. Jesus taught them. You just think about the parable Jesus told earlier of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die, both experience the afterlife, one in Hades and torment the rich man and Lazarus, interesting enough, next to Abraham. So exclusivity, not all attain to that age. Next truth, he points out, the implications of immortality. There is no further need to multiply. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, and I would plug in, worthy to attain to that age because they've forsaken the treasures of this world and fallen Christ by faith. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And we know that one of the reasons for marriage, not the only reason, you've already seen that one of the reasons for marriage is the pictures of the gospel, is production of children. And when there's no death anymore, there's no need to repopulate the human race. So because they cannot die anymore, we're in the new heavens and the new earth, when we're in heaven, there will not be a need to repopulate. They cannot die anymore. That's why they're not given marriage, Jesus says. And so the command in Genesis 1, 28 to be fruitful and multiply will finally be fulfilled and will no longer be placed upon the human race. And finally, Jesus gives them some truth about paternity. As he's made the notion of exclusivity, not everyone gets into heaven, not everyone gets into the resurrection, he makes it clear that there's those who are considered worthy to attain resurrection are also those who are equal with angels. And there we're talking about a measure of glory and status. The angels neither marry nor are given marriage. But they are sons of God. You see, you won't need to marry and, and make a family because you'll be part of God's family. You'll be his sons and daughters in the resurrection. You will be part of the family and the only family that matters. So Jesus corrects their misunderstandings about the relationship between this age and the age to come. They've assumed if there is a resurrection, ah, how crazy, it'll be just like this life. He's like, no, it's not just like this life. They don't marry in the resurrection. Why? Because the fullness of what marriage pictures has come. And they, because they don't die. And therefore there's no need to repopulate the human race and they're part of God's family. Now that answers their question. And notice, as I said, Jesus' authority. He's just telling them the way it is. There's no reference to text. There's no argument for the Old Testament. Jesus, as God's spokesman, as his prophet, is telling them truth. But now, we're going to get proof of the resurrection. And here Jesus will show himself a masterful exegete. In fact, this argument, verses 37 and 38, is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful, if not most powerful, arguments I'm aware of to the inerrancy and accuracy and historicity of the Scripture. The, the, these two verses, I hope we'll see in a few minutes, 
are, is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful arguments, the inerrancy, the accuracy, the historicity, and inspiration of the Bible. So Jesus has dealt with their bogus presentation question. There is no problem. The woman's not married to any of them. Next. But he knows what they're getting at. They were trying with that fake question to make a point about the resurrection. And so Jesus will instruct them on this. We get proof of the resurrection. I want to pause here for a moment. Um, Jesus is going to cite Exodus. He's going to prove the resurrection from Exodus 2, 3, and 4. It, it's popular today among Christians to just read the New Testament. I even heard recently of a, of a popular pastor talking about we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The notion being it's, it's too much of a burden for Christians that to defend the Old Testament and the crazy stories like the flood and the creation and such. So why don't we just unhitch the Old Testament, deal with the New Testament and Jesus? And I want to encourage you, stay hitched to the Old Testament, please. It is rich and rightly understood. It's perfectly in sync with the New Testament. Jesus is going to argue the resurrection from Exodus. The Old Testament, we're told in 1 Corinthians, is written for us. These things happen to them as examples, are written down for us. The Old Testament is a Christian book. Stay hitched, the Old Testament, please. So let's follow Jesus' argument. I want you to turn back, keep your thumb here, turn back to Exodus chapter 2. Because what Jesus says is this that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage of the bush. But he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Of all live to him. There's an interesting part of the citation for all those who struggle with the memory verses. The passage about the bush. There's also a citation in Hebrews. It is written somewhere. So that's biblical. If you can't remember the verse number, you can just say, it's written somewhere. You know, the passage about the bush. Good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. That's okay. Um, I want you to track Jesus' argument. Exodus, we'll start Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And of course, we're going to start Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. So Israel, the family of Israel has gone down, Jacob has gone out of Egypt, and then time begins to seriously pass, about 400 years. And in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he treats the Israelites harshly. They become slaves, and they cry out to God. Jump to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's just one point. You just pause there and just, just delight. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. And so Moses, who's out in the Midianite wilderness, hurting animals, has encountered the living God. And he sees a bush burning. It's not consumed. In verse 3, Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight. In chapter 3, verse 3 and 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, but he was afraid to look at God. Very familiar passage. Even the kids, I'm sure, seen the flannel graph with the burning bush. And yet Jesus insists, that passage just read specifically verse 6, proves the resurrection. It's amazing. Proves the resurrection. So keep, we're, look back and forth. Keep, keep your finger here. Look at Luke. Jesus cites this passage. Right? But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. I want to pause again. They cited Moses to begin with. When we already read Daniel 12, too, it makes it clear there's a resurrection. People are raised. Why didn't Jesus use Daniel 12, too? Well, partly because it appears, as best as we can tell, that the, the Sadducees did not put as much stock in the books after Moses. But I think more to the point, they cited Moses? Okay, Moses will do prove the resurrection from Moses. Okay, that's partly what you get from even Moses. Like, this is so easy to prove. Well, sure, we'll just use Moses. Okay, even Moses proves the resurrection. In the passage of the bush, where it calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, we've seen that, right? So what God says to him from the bush, I'm God, the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, Now God is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all living hand. What's he, what's he saying here? Here's the argument, and here's, we get an insight into Jesus' view of the scripture. Because I mean, if you're a follower of Christ, I trust you want to read your Bible like Jesus reads his Bible. You want to treat the scripture like Jesus treats the scripture. And one of the challenges I'll get from other Christians, more to the left, more liberal, is, you know, Jeremy, you take an awful lot of time, make an awful lot of deal with words and grammar and stuff. And really, it's just a human book, and all that matters is the big message and the idea of God's love. Okay, does Jesus read the Bible that way? Because I want to make the point. Here's, here's Jesus' argument, okay? God spoke to Moses long after the patriarchs died. And that's key to understanding the argument. And by the way, that assumes the historicity of the Old Testament. And it assumes, Jesus assumes the historicity of the Old Testament. This entire argument doesn't work unless it's a real Moses, a real encounter with the bush, a real Abraham, a real Jacob, and a real Isaac. None of this works if these are just you know, myths about the creation of Israel. But assumes the historical accuracy. And then, key to the argument is the passage of time. About 400 years past. Now, Jesus is dealing with a text written 1,600 years before him. Moses wrote about 1,600 B.C. And so Moses is writing about these things. Jesus has a very old book. And yet, Jesus assumes historicity. So the first point of the argument is God spoke long after the patriarchs died. Now, why do you get this? The entire argument, this is, this is so amazing, Jesus' entire argument hinges that God declared that he is and not was their God. That's Jesus' argument. Hey, his Sadducees, you know the passage of the bush? He says, I am, not I was their God. That's Jesus' entire argument for the resurrection. It's just wonderful. Because Jesus is hanging the weight of his entire argument on the tense of a verb. The entire argument is, is, is not what. And, and the Sadducees don't respond where, like, come on, Jesus, you're getting a little overly literal. You're kind of sounding like a fundamentalist here. They don't respond that way. 
But you're going to see the response is they're going to put their hands on their mouth and not dare talk to him. Jesus and all of his contemporaries understood the Bible to be this accurate. Jesus has a 1,600-year-old manuscript. And they don't say, now Jesus, you know there's all these scribal errors and copious mistakes, and really you're, you're written in a mountain out of a molehill. Come on. But his entire argument hinges upon the tense of one word. When God appeared to Moses 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, and God identifies himself to Moses and says, hey, Moses, I am Abraham's God. I am Jacob's God. I am Isaac's God. Not I was their God. So your next point. Therefore, when God spoke to Moses, they are. If God says, I am Abraham's God, if so facto, Abraham somewhere, somehow, is. He exists. Because God is stating a relationship. I am in a relationship of being Abraham's God. I am doing that. That's who I am. Not who I was. It's who I am. And the entire argument follows that logic. This is absolutely amazing. This is the level of accuracy Jesus treats the Holy Scriptures. He doesn't just write the general gist of things. His argument hinges upon a single tense of a single verb in a 1,600-year-old document. And everyone around him accepts the validity of this reasoning. In other words, this view of Scripture and its accuracy and its historicity is not unique to Jesus. Everyone else recognizes, wow, and you're going to see the scribes teacher, you spoke well. Nobody comes in blowing the whistle saying, hold on, hold on. This is, this is a little too literal for me. Everyone grants this. And so if you wonder or worry sometimes whether the, the accuracy of which we try to read the Bible, the precision of which we try to understand the words is, is making too much out of Scripture, if we're going too far, I, I would argue we're just trying to follow the model of the Master. And what I'll tell my friends down the street I'm going to challenge me with reading things too. I'm just trying to read my Bible like Jesus. I'm taking my cues from Jesus. So you have the option of reading the Bible like Jesus. He accepts the historicity of Moses. He accepts the authorship of the Pentateuch by Moses. He accepts the historicity of the timeline, the chronology, the events. Read, read your Bible like Jesus. Don't be afraid to do that. It's okay. Don't unhitch from the Old Testament. Stay hitched and read it carefully. Because Jesus just proved, like, I bet when you've read through this, I, when I've read through this before I've read these passages in Luke, I didn't get one. That means there's a resurrection. If you slow down and read carefully, there are riches in the Old Testament. There are riches in the Scripture. And our Lord models how to handle, how to meditate, how to focus on and think over God's Word and how to draw truth out from it. Therefore, when God spoke to Moses, they still are. They exist in it. He closes it with this final point. For all life is from him and to him. For all live to him. And I think the point he's making here is simply this. God is the source of life. And yes, from our vantage point, death and the body decays and we bury them and we move on. But that life came from God and so it's no, it's no strange thing if God chooses to continue someone's existence in another place. If God chooses to grant the body a soul, he's going to be life in the first place. And so it's not difficult for him. 
They've been scoffed at the, the, the consequence of the resurrection, the crazy scenarios they envision in making. They have to scoff at reality. No, God's the author of life. All live to Him. And Jesus deals with his adversaries by referencing. He doesn't even quote, referencing one verse in Exodus 6. Would that we would have that confidence, that knowledge of the scripture. He's done. He's defeated them. All we have now, point three, is the crowd's amazed response. The crowd's amazed response. Now I'm going to give you a tip. When your enemies praise you, you've done a good job. Who are the people who were just trying to attack Jesus? We're back in Luke. Who are the people who were just trying to attack Jesus? Look at verse 19 of chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him and that's what they wanted to lynch him. Because they perceived that he had told this parable against them. These are the people who sent in spies. What do we read in verse 39? And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Well, you understand that Jesus' power, wisdom, and authority was so clearly understood. We talked about this a few weeks ago, about how they understood who he was. The wisdom, the power, the authority with which our Lord deals with his foes masterfully is so self-evident that even the people trying to lynch him have to give him credit. When, you're, when the people trying to kill you say, well, well done. You've done well. You've done well. The scribes praise his answer. The scribes praise his answer. And I'm sure they didn't enjoy doing that. This is the one who stands behind all scripture. This is the living word of God speaking God's word. The one who has mastered it telling Israel it's meaning. They, they it is so self-evidently right and true that they just, well done. Well done. And then we get the conclusion of his interaction. He's not done blasting them. The rest of chapter 20, he's got two more things to say to them. About his own authority and about their wickedness and corruption. There's two more rounds. But so far, Jesus is four and the scribes and the chief priests are zero in this combat in the temple. None of them. And I think the them, there's some debate over who the them, I think it's all of Jesus' enemies. None of them dare to ask any more questions. Here's what they realize. There's no possible way of trapping him, tricking him. That they give up and at a certain point concede that Jesus is speaking the truth. Because if you really truly believe Jesus was a false teacher, get him to say his false teaching. Wouldn't that be the easiest way to condemn him? But they give up trying to ask him questions. Because they don't reveal any corruption in him. He just constantly makes them look foolish. Which is why I turn to chapter 23. They've given up on truth. They know they're condemning an innocent man. They just get a lie about him. He's not going to ask him anymore. Let's just go live on it. Let's just make stuff up. Luke 23. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. What are you talking about? He just told them, Render to Caesar. Things that, we'll, just, we'll just say he said it. When, you, when you're doing
doing that, you're self-consciously aware that you're condemning the innocent. They didn't make a mistake with Jesus. They knew perfectly well what they were doing. He answered their questions flawlessly, and they dared not ask him more questions that they still hated him. So as we draw to a close, I want to make three applications of this passage, three things for us as we move on. And first, we need this. Have an unshakable confidence in God's Word. Jesus has just demonstrated a ridiculous amount of confidence in the oldest part of our very old book. Is possible that Job predates the, uh, the writings of Moses? Possible. But certainly the books of Moses constitute one of the oldest, if not the oldest part of our admittedly very old book. The newest portions of our book are 2,000 years old. But 1,600 years old in Jesus' day. And Jesus hangs his entire argument on the tense one little word in the text. Jesus says that's have a confidence. We should have that confidence. Don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed of your Bible. Jesus isn't. Have, have confidence in God. And study to, to know it so you can answer questions that would be like Jesus. I mean, he just silenced everybody. And Paul instructs us to study to show ourselves approved. This is the basis of our water, right? A water approved workers need not be ashamed. Study to show yourself approved. Worker who needs not to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of God. So, so take supreme confidence. Stay hitched to the Old Testament. Study it. Master it. Learn it. <coughs> Second, you want to make sure that you attain to the resurrection. Jesus has, I think, tried by suggesting this actually it's not everyone's getting there. The implication, you guys have barking at the you should be more concerned, how can I get to the resurrection? There is an afterlife. Make no mistake. You, you may be tempted to think this life is all there is to Jesus firmly believes in the afterlife. Jesus firmly understands there is life after this. Not everybody attains to heaven and resurrection. And Jesus has been very clear in, in Luke's gospel on how one attains the resurrection. It's not by doing good things, and it's not by going to church, and it's not by taking communion, and it's not by getting baptized, and it's not any of those things. But it's a trust and following him. Turning from whatever it is you're trusting in. The rich, the rich young ruler was trusting in his money. Let, let it go. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Follow him. And that is how one attains the resurrection. That is how one becomes a son or a daughter of God. That's how someone gets the eternal life. That is life. Don't miss that. And finally, exalt in your wonderful Savior. I call the worship team up as we get ready to sing our final song, which does that very thing. We have an awesome Savior. He is single-handedly taking on all foes and all comers all day long, all week long in the temple, as the scribes and the chief priests and now the Sadducees come, trying to trap him, trip him up. He silences them. Our Savior is a great Savior. Our God is a great God. Jesus deserves all glory and all honor. And we see such a glory here in this passage. Read the Lord of the screen. Very good. We close in prayer and we will say all I have is Christ. Lord God, give us this confidence in your word.
give us the desire to study and show ourselves approved, that we might give answers to those real questions. Lord, help us to focus on our own um, afterlife, that we might attain, becoming worthy to the resurrection of the just. Not worthy because we are doing good deeds, but worthy because we are clothed in the righteousness of the only one who is truly worthy. And Lord, help us to have a confidence in the glory and the light and the love of our great Savior, Jesus, who trances his foes and establishes himself as the one who speaks the word of God, who interprets the word of God, and who leads the people of God. If we have him, we have everything. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>